Hi, this is John, by the way, and today I'm looking at the Come Follow Me lesson for Matthew 5 and Luke 6. And you know, this is a tall order. How do you talk about the Sermon on the Mount and do it justice? And this is the first chapter of that, the Beatitudes. So I'll just admit defeat right now, but I'll do the best I can. This is perhaps the most famous sermon ever. And let's begin, Matthew chapter 5. Seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain. And when he was set, his disciples came unto him. Okay, there's multitudes. He goes up into a mountain. And mountains are like nature's temples, where we meet God halfway. We have great perspective up there. Remember, Mount Sinai is where Moses got the law. Jesus is about to give a higher law. He went up to a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him. He saw the multitudes, he went to a mountain, but it sounds like only the disciples followed him. And it says, when he was set. Typically today, teachers stand when they're going to teach, but teachers would sit. In fact, I've heard that the tradition still holds of, we, we call somebody the chair of the department of whatever in education because you sit. Well, he, he sat, and the disciples came, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. Now, the Beatitudes, the happy attitudes, as we sometimes call them, because the word for blessed is translated from the Greek makarios, and there's 50 occurrences of makarios in the Greek New Testament. The King James translators rendered it blessed 44 times out of those 50, happy five times, and happier one time. For example, in John chapter 13, verse 17, it says, If ye know these things, happy are ye if ye do them. That could have been translated blessed. But anyway, he goes and up to this mountain and begins with these beatitudes, with that word blessed, in our King James translation. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You can imagine, I like to ask my students, imagine if you were a reporter, and before the sermon began, you were walking around down below with the multitudes, asking them, if you were walking down below with the audience and asking people the question, so who are the really happy people in life? They might say, oh, the confident, the self-assured, the secure, the strong, the independent, those with high self-esteem. And Jesus gets up and begins with, blessed are the poor in spirit. What does that mean to be poor in spirit? In Isaiah 66, 2, uh, the Lord says, To this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit, and trembleth at my word. Uh, Psalms thirty four eighteen says, The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart. The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart, and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. So, poor in spirit is a, a humility of spirit, and a good kind of cross-reference to, to contrast what rich in spirit might be is the, the parable of the Pharisee and the publican spoken of in Luke chapter 18. Two men went up to the temple to pray, the one Pharisee, the other Republican, and the Pharisee looked up and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week, I give tithes of all that I possess. So that doesn't sound like a poor in spirit. 
That sounds like a rich in spirit person. (laughs) And as you know, in the parable, the publican standing afar off would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus concludes, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. That's Luke 18, 9-14. Perfect example of being poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's humility. Verse 4, blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Why would we ever think blessed are they that mourn? Well, there's another verse that I like that goes with this kind of, and that is some last verses in the book of Malachi, chapter 3, Malachi chapter 3, verses 14 through 18. So this is kind of the prophet responding to the people. Ye have said, it is vain to serve God, and what profit is it that we have kept his ordinance, and that we have walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts? Now we call the proud happy, or blessed in this context. Yea, they that work wickedness are set up. They that tempt God are even delivered. Boy, does that sound relevant today. Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another, and the Lord hearkened and heard it. And a book of remembrance, ye have said, it is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept his ordinance, and that we have walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts? He blessed are they that mourn. Now we call the proud happy. They that work wickedness are set up. They that tempt God are even delivered. And that's what it appears to be as we look around. People that do all sorts, all men of wickedness, pride, everything. They're the ones who are the lifestyles of the rich and famous and everything. They're set. They that tempt God are even delivered. Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another. And the Lord hearkened and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. And they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts, in that day when I make up my jewels, and I will spare them as a man spareth his own son that serveth him. Then shall ye return and discern between the righteous and the wicked, between him that serveth God and him that serveth him not. So one day you'll be able to tell exactly. So blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. And notice the mixed tenses in these Beatitudes. There's a present reality, blessed are the, followed by a future possibility, for they shall be. A lot of these sound like whatever state you're in now, things can change. And with my New Testament classes, I like to show a vending machine, and even Elder Christofferson mentioned the vending machine in a recent general conference. The idea of a vending machine is you put something in and you get something out immediately. And if you don't get something out immediately, people get really frustrated. And they they kick and punch and try to tilt the vending machine to get what they want right now. But life is not like a vending machine. It's more like you put something in and you wait. And during the wait, all you can do is have patience, have hope, have faith, Life is like that. It's more like, I'm going to do the right thing, and I might get blessed, and I might not. And it might be for a while. I don't even know. And I love what President Taft Benson said about this. One of the trials of life, he said, is that we do not usually receive immediately 
the full blessing for righteousness or the full cursing for wickedness. That it will come is certain, but oftentimes there is a waiting period that occurs, as was the case with Job and Joseph. Uh, Yeah, this waiting period can be really frustrating when we have been trained to think life is like a vending machine. It's a formula. If I do good, then good comes back to me. Well, it might. It might come in time. It did for Job and for Joseph, but it took a while. So here's a couple of psalms that go along with this. Psalms chapter 30, verses 5 and 11. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. There's the future possibility. Verse 11 of Psalms 30, Thou hast turned for me my mourning into dancing. Thou hast put off my sackcloth and girded me with gladness. The next beatitude, verse 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Meekness is a tough a tough sell these days. <laughs> what does it mean to be meek? And we talked about this on the Follow Him podcast a little bit. But the dictionary.com definition of meekness is this, humbly patient or docile, as under provocation from others, overly submissive or compliant, spiritless, tame. And that's not something we really want. I, I don't think that there's a lot of young women out there who want to meet a guy who is overly compliant, overly submissive, compliant, spiritless, and tame. I don't think that describes Jesus. I don't think that describes Captain Moroni. President Elder David A. Bednar gave a talk in the April 2018 General Conference, and he said the Christ-like quality of meekness often is misunderstood in our contemporary world. Meekness is strong, not weak, active, not passive, Courageous, not timid, restrained, not excessive, modest, not self-aggrandizing, and gracious, not brash. A meek person is not easily provoked, pretentious, or overbearing, and readily acknowledges the accomplishments of others. Whereas humility generally denotes dependence upon God and the constant need for His guidance and support, a distinguishing characteristic of meekness is a particular spiritual receptivity to learning both from the Holy Ghost and from people who may seem less capable, experienced, or educated, who may not hold important positions, or who otherwise may not appear to have much to contribute. Very interesting talk on meekness, which is very helpful. Another definition that I I shared on the Follow Him podcast is, meekness is great power under complete control. And that came from an article in the Ensign, let me get you the reference, January 1991 Ensign, page 20, called The Beatitudes, Pathway to the Savior. Next, and I think meekness, one of the ways, I don't think you have to be meek in the face of evil. I don't think Captain Moroni was weak or was meek when others were trying to attack his people. I don't think you say, okay, go ahead and attack us which sounds like the dictionary definition of meek. But Captain Moroni was meek when it came to dealing with God and those in authority over him. And, and that's how we have to be, I think, with, our, with God, with those who are like accepting a calling. We can be meek with that. I don't think we have to 
be walked all over when it's coming from evil. Anyway, next, blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, which is probably my favorite of the Beatitudes, because it kind of says none of us are righteous right now. It doesn't say blessed are the righteous, but we can hunger and thirst after it. We can want that. And hunger and thirst have to be addressed every single day. And we're never done being hungry and thirsty while we're alive. And I think it's the same sort of a thing. We're going to continue to hunger and thirst and strive for righteousness. For they shall be filled, and the JST and the Book of Mormon version of the Beatitudes adds, they shall be filled with the Holy Ghost. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy, is sometimes been called the doctrine of reciprocity, where if you want mercy, then you extend mercy. The prophet Joseph Smith said, just a stunning statement to think about, should we even forgive our brother or even our enemy before he repent or ask forgiveness, our Heavenly Father would be equally as merciful unto us. That's, that's amazing to think about. That is in Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith, pages 392 and 393. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Further in this chapter, we have the comparisons to salt and to light. Ye are the light of the world. And Jesus in John 8, 12 says, I am the light of the world. So that's a nickname he shares with us. But one of the things I find so interesting here and kind of audacious, the scholars have called it thesis, antithesis, or antithesis, where instead of looking back as many rabbis did and saying, Moses taught us this, Moses taught us this, Jesus says, you have heard it said of old time, but I say this, and you can, you can imagine the audacity. Who does he think he is? Well, we know who he thought he was. He's the one who gave the law to Moses in the first place. So there are six of these, thesis, antithesis, in the rest of Matthew chapter 5. Verse 21, Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill. Verse 22, But I say unto you, Whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Or I think the JST says, in danger of his judgment. But there you've got it. He's saying, you've heard this, but I say this. Whoa! Can you imagine the reaction? Verse 27, another thesis, antithesis. It was said by them of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say, whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery already with her in his, with her already in his heart. That's verses 27 and 28. Verse 31, it hath been said, whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. Verse 32, but I say, whosoever shall put away his wife, save for the cause of fornication. And we will cover marriage later on, because it's, it's, uh, those are questions that come up for Jesus from the Pharisees and the Sadducees later on as well. Verse 33, again ye have heard that it hath been said by them of old time, thou shalt not forswear thyself, but that shalt perform unto the Lord thine oaths. Verse 34, but I say unto you, swear not at all. Verse 38 and 39, ye have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you, that ye resist not evil, meaning evil done towards you, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other. All Verse 43 and 44, 
Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. If you can imagine some of these sayings that sounded so like they're from another planet. I picked up a book called The Lion Handbook to the Bible. I thumbed through it in the Holy Land and thought I'd get it. I liked this paragraph. In the Beatitudes, Jesus turns ordinary human ideas about happiness upside down. Contrary to general opinion, it is not the rich, the ruthless, the powerful, who are really well off. The generally fortunate are those who recognize their dependence on God. God's people are suffering with meekness, longing to be right with God, ready to forgive, and have their hearts set on God and peacemaking. I thought that was a good idea. Just it's, It turns everything upside down, <laughs> Jesus' teaching. And in Luke chapter 6, which is also in this chapter, we have some contrasting woes. Now, this is sometimes called the Sermon on the Plain, because in Luke six seventeen, it says, He came down with them and stood in the plain. Now, was this the same sermon in a different place? Were there extra things here? We don't really know, but there are contrasting woes. Let's start in verse 20. Blessed be ye poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are ye that hunger now, for ye shall be filled. Blessed are ye that weep now, for ye shall laugh. Verse 22, Blessed are ye when men shall hate you, and when they shall separate you from their company, and shall reproach you, and cast out your name as evil, for the Son of Man's sake. Now here come the contrasting woes. Luke six twenty-four, Woe unto you that are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe unto you that are full, for ye shall hunger. Woe unto you that laugh now, for ye shall mourn and weep. Woe unto you when all men shall speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. So there's a little bit of this idea of whatever things are like now, they can change. It better be ready. (laughs) So I remember having a hard day in high school once, and my dad said to me, this too shall pass. And then when I was having a really good day, my dad said, this too shall pass. So things can change. And what doesn't change is God and our reliance on him. Let me see. I wanted to read to you a a scholar about the thesis, antithesis. Let's see. This was Valerie Triplett Hittito. Hope I'm pronouncing that name right. In the Sperry Symposium, the 39th annual Sperry Symposium, she said, When Jesus made the distinction, ye have heard, but I say unto you, he showed he did not derive his teaching from the law of Moses, as the rabbis did, but instead sought to restore the true power of the law of Moses as a vehicle for greater revelation. Jesus' stress on but I say is audacious, but it signifies that he went beyond traditional authority. Absolutely. The last verse in Matthew chapter 5, Be therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Now we've heard from, well, many sources. The footnotes talk about perfect means complete or finished or fully developed. Additionally, President Nelson has talked about that same idea, that it means you're complete and finished. Elder Jeffrey R. Holland gave that talk, Be therefore perfect, eventually and kind of helped us see that. I know that some liked it the two verses before, 
and put them all together, 46, 47, and 48, and it helps us see the command be therefore perfect in a different context. Verse 46, if ye love them which love you, what, re- what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if you salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? I love those verses. It's like, if you only love those that love you, big deal. Anybody can do that. Publicans do that. If you're only nice to the people that are nice to you, what are you doing more than the publicans? And then the next verse, be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. And when you read those together, you get a sense that perhaps this is talking about being perfectly loving. The verses before, like verse 45, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven, for he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. He loves us all the same. If we can be perfectly loving, then we can be like our Father in heaven. That's another school of thought of how to look at those verses. It doesn't come out the same in 3 Nephi 12, with these verses just before it, but it does in Matthew 5. So, so much to talk about in, in these, this first part of the Sermon on the Mount. And we will talk about Matthew 6 and 7, the rest of what's called the Sermon on the Mount, later. Thanks for joining me. 